Welcome back to The Build Podcast. I'm Blake Bartlett, a partner at OpenView. Our goal in this season is to figure out the new customer journey and what it means for SaaS. Today we hear from Sahir Azam, Chief Product Officer at MongoDB. Mongo originally made its name on open source, but has recently been amplifying its growth at scale through its commercial self-serve product called Atlas. We hear today from Sahir about the differences between these two models, but also how to integrate them together to win the hearts and minds of developers. We all know and love MongoDB, and chances are that some of your services or perhaps your entire product are built on a Mongo database. And if you're a developer, you of course know Mongo inside and out as they really popularized the modern NoSQL database movement and they have an enormous developer community. But what you may not know is how MongoDB turns that developer love into production deployments and ultimately paying customers and revenue. In this episode, we focus a lot of our conversation on exactly that, and specifically the different flavors of developer self-serve and the huge differences between open source self-serve and SaaS self-serve. All that and more on this episode of The Build Podcast. So with that, let's dive in. All right. Well, Sahir, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Build Podcast. It's great to have you. No problem, Blake. I'm really happy to be here. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you. We're going to jump into all things product-led growth and talking about the state of product that we find ourselves in today in the enterprise with the rise of self-service and all the rest. But before we get into the details, I'm curious to get your take. You know, I've certainly observed the fact that self-serve in a B2B or in in an enterprise context is definitely not a new concept, but it certainly seems to be having a moment and it seems to be kind of the hot trend that everybody's talking about right now. Why do you think that is? Why is everybody talking about and focusing on self-serve today? Yeah, I think it's probably a confluence of different kind of factors, at least what I see or what I've observed. I think one is definitely the fact that enterprise software in terms of its usability and quality, which has also comes hand in hand with it, you know, a lot of enterprise software now being or business software being delivered as SaaS services, it just makes it so much easier to actually consume. So in an environment where it used to be heavyweight, expensive software that needed to be installed in a corporate data center and frankly was only ever upgraded at once a year, you know, you'd really needed a heavyweight, high touch sales process just to even do business. And I think in a lot of ways now, when considering technology choices, people want to be informed directly in a hands-on way with something that's easy to figure out, easy to learn about without requiring interaction with that particular vendor. And then maybe you rely on the vendor to actually drive a purchase, enable best practices, drive training. But it's kind of like flip that whole model around. And you know whether you call that design thinking, <laughs> consumerization of IT, as well as just a general consumption-based models that make it easier to procure things directly. I think all of those are at play here in driving the rise of self-service more prevalently in B2B software. I think the second factor is just we've seen some really great examples. If you look at businesses like Atlassian or Twilio or um, you're seeing Stripe do, especially for developer audiences, what you end up seeing is why you can really build a massive business that's really efficient. And it may not be exclusively self-service. And many of those are have a significant sales component, but it's an important channel to bringing reach and revenue into the business. Yeah, it's kind of what occurs to me as you describe that is that it's kind of the continued trend of instant gratification 
or of real time. So as that sort of pervades everything that we do and certainly our, our technology lives, that's also pervading and in, in becoming the reality or the expectation inside the workplace as well. So that idea of like my software gets updated once a year because that's as often as there's a new version that's released from the vendor is just unacceptable. And we want our software to be updated every single day. And we want to be able to see the call to action and click on it and get an experience right away and get a proof of value. And everything has just kind of gotten collapsed where there's just no patience. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's not that different than I don't want to interact with my bank by having to go speak to a teller and drive five minutes or 10 minutes to get there and all that. I just want to be able to pull up in an app. It's not that different in the enterprise now where the buying behavior is saying, I want to be able to find out about technologies, maybe try it for my team for a particular project in a really frictionless way without having to you know, necessarily bring in a full-on procurement process and security review and all that to make an enterprise-wide decision just to get started. Yeah, so I think we're, we're talking about a lot of things that certainly resonate with people today. And, and many people have the sort of response of, yep, I get it. I agree with you. Self-service is great. I'm all in on it, but I need some help on how to do it, right? And as you start to get into details of how do you do self-serve, how do you do it well within a B2B context, that's where the challenge is, right? And I would say one of the, the starting points that I see people getting sort of off on the wrong footing is, is sort of assuming that self-serve is kind of one size fits all. And this is, in my view, a common mistake. So I think that there's a lot of different ways in which we could explore what does that look like in practice and, and how is it not one size fits all. But I think for you guys in the context of MongoDB and being a developer-focused solution and also having open source roots, I think that's actually a really interesting starting point is to sort of call out the difference between open source versus a self-serve cloud product. What's the difference in those two and, and how are they similar, but how are they different? Yeah, so I can start out with, I think, some of the similarities. I mean, one of the foundational, I think, truths of being a developer-led business where our core audience, our core user, our core constituent is a developer, whether that be in a large enterprise or a startup or, you know, somebody learning technology, it's, there's a lot of sort of consistencies there. A big part of what we, you know, our focus with open source, why we open source the technology in the first place, as well as the way we ran our early kind of marketing efforts at MongoDB was really grassroots. It was about having a lot of hands-on technical sessions, getting people introduced to the technology, getting them to try the technology in a way that was fit for the way developers like to consume information. It had to be really credible. It couldn't be, you know, really kind of over marketing and needed to be very grassroots and community led. So I think those pieces that apply to the adoption of a successful open source project are very much the same things that apply to marketing, quote unquote, our self-service funnel as well. It needs to be grassroots, authentic, credible content, very community focused in driving the adoption and knowledge of our technologies and products. I think there's a lot of similarities. And I think a lot of the in grassroots kind of developer traction have almost been scaled up or reinvigorated in more recent years with Atlas and our cloud products, because it is the way we drive people into the funnel and into the self-service product. Now, for us, I think a big difference, though, is in an open source or software context, from a monetization point of view, we tend to really only focus on the applications that are built on our database that are in production and, on, and typically in large enterprise accounts. Because the dynamic between what we give away for free, which is most of our IP, all the core database capabilities, anyone can download, anyone can use on their own. 
So the stuff that we tend to charge for is the stuff that large enterprises need to operate. So management tooling, security, uh, relationship with a vendor like Mongo who builds the technology for support. So the net effect is we're really only monetizing mission-critical applications at the end of their kind of life cycle. But in the SaaS model, things really get flipped around where we have the customer through that entire journey. They may start out on the free tier of our SaaS product and then ultimately convert into a really lightweight paid account just to get some additional capacity or features. And then they mature with us over time. So as a business, we're much more engaged with that company than the early end of their application lifecycle. We get to monetize, frankly, that entire curve as opposed to just the tail end of it. And since it's a SaaS product with all the instrumentation, we can really understand where things are going wrong or where things are going well. This is where people might come into the process for a self-service customer. You know, if we see a self-service customer that's growing like crazy, we want to make sure we have our customer success team engaged to help them along. Or if we see some signs that they're using the product incorrectly or some triggers that we think might lead to a bad experience, we could potentially get support engaged to avoid churn. So there's a lot of things we can do, obviously, in a SaaS model that just is impossible in any software context that I think is just true of any business that runs in the cloud, but has profound effects, I think, on the go-to-market and how our business has changed because of it. Now, if you were talking to you know a founder who wanted to focus on building a developer tool, and they were at that very first starting point of, should I build an open source project or should I build a closed source proprietary developer tool in the cloud? And they're obviously not mutually exclusive. You guys have done both. But if you're at that starting point, what would you advise somebody as to why you would take one path versus the other path? It's a tricky distinction because I think you have to really look at what type of technology you're building and where it is in the stack. For example, for like a database, infrastructure software these days, like open source technologies are the most fastest growing and pervasive ones. Now, they may be monetized by a vendor like AWS or Google, or in the case of Mongo, we run the database as a service as well as build the database and monetize it that way. But the idea that it's open source is a big accelerant for customers because developers know they have transparency into the code base. They know they have the flexibility to run it themselves should they need to. So it's almost like a requirement. And, you know, especially in the infrastructure layers of the stack, you look at operating systems, databases, caching technologies, those types of things. I feel like open source is almost a requirement, you know, to make a dent into the space. But I think the further you get to up the stack towards an actual application, I think the like benefits of maybe being open source are are not as necessary or may not may not be as necessary or as much of a positive. And then maybe it makes more sense to just run it more like a traditional proprietary SaaS application. But you know, in our case, it was such a clear, obvious choice that it needed to be open source because we're so low in the stack as a foundational component of infrastructure that we didn't feel like we could even really get adoption if we didn't have a, the majority of our IP as open source. And do you guys think about the ultimate persona in a self-serve context, which for you, I would assume would be a, a developer oftentimes. Do you think about that developer as being the same if it's coming to an open source version of Mongo versus Atlas, for example? Or are they kind of different personas, different developers, different individuals that would sort of consider one path versus the other? The personas themselves are not that different. And in many cases, we will have people who have download our open source version, they develop on it on their laptop or 
you know, in their own environment, but then use a SaaS service for other apps or for other phases of the lifecycle. So we see all of that, but there's not a lot of distinction. It's fundamentally developers who get their hands dirty with the tech and some want to get started and get running completely in the cloud. Others want to mix or others need to run it in their company's data center. So they just deal with the software. I think the bigger distinction in persona for us comes in terms of, you know, in the software world, we tend to monetize a lot with operations because they're the ones who need the proprietary technology we build to manage MongoDB, as opposed to the developers who have long made their decision on Mongo and are happy with it, but aren't charged necessarily with operating and kind of keeping the lights on with the database. So there's more of a divergence on the software side. On the SaaS side, the developers and their leadership are the ones purchasing and using our technology. So it's almost driven some convergence persona in terms of go-to-market focus for us. We see everything from the development team starting an application, just scales it all on a credit card and just the growth as the app grows or spend with us grows or as they expand to more applications, that's just sort of happening in an organic way. And we really never have to go through a formal procurement process. There are other scenarios in which they may start that way, but then they start to get to some real scale. And then they want a more formal contractual relationship with us because they want discounting, for example, or lock in a predictable sort of price point for their contract over the long term. So there may be just a maturity curve where they go from self-service into our sales channel because of those dynamics. And then there are other scenarios like in enterprise accounts, which are highly regulated and you know have tight governance around compliance and security sign-off, especially for a technology like ours, where we're handling really sensitive data in some cases. So there, maybe they learn about our technology, play around in the free tier, but they don't want to go put a corporate card down to start consuming. So then they engage our sales organization, and then we you know, engage in a formal process there to get through security reviews and make sure we get the executive alignment we need to work with the vendor. And then the last I would say is those are all sort of inbound motions generally. We have a very significant enterprise side of our business, which is very sophisticated at introducing MongoDB high in the organization as a strategic vendor that could be used across modernization initiatives, you know, new application development, more than just sort of app by app. And I think the interesting dynamic for us is we've seen the ability to go high in an organization at a very strategic level, but be able to marry that with our grassroots developer sort of traction and hackathons and content marketing and ABM to make sure we are taking both a tops-down and a bottoms-up approach within an account. And some technologies may not need that. There's some companies that can just sell completely tops-down. There are others that are just more tactical technologies that may be really powerful, but are always sold very low in the org. MongoDB, we have to kind of mix both of those because although we can get high in an org and that gives us a really strategic relationship and perhaps you know larger deals, it doesn't mean that we don't have to earn our way and our trust for every application team and development team that ultimately you know is going to be betting their particular component to their app on our tech. So we're getting squarely into the idea of the customer journey and how does that look different in a self-service context. You know, we're starting to unpack it a bit here, but how do you go from individual adoption of an individual developer inside a customer account to their whole team using it, or perhaps the whole organization standardizing on Mongo? How does that initial adoption to sort of wider adoption happen? And is it something that you can influence? It's definitely something we can influence to varying degrees. Now, at the same time, 
a technology like a database is not something that is there's only one database to rule them all in an organization. Maybe like 20 years ago, you had a Microsoft technology and an Oracle technology, and that's all you had. Now there's so much autonomy on selection of technologies, which is great by the individual teams that are building things that there's always going to be a breadth of solutions within a large customer. The customer journey point for us is interesting because different customers have different needs and those aren't always obvious based on something as simple as the size of company, for example. There may be projects that if we look at an organization, they're a small company, you know, recently funded, they're launching a new app. And, you know, on paper, it would be one of those like, okay, this is a company that maybe we best leave to self-serve or maybe to an inside sales team that deals with less complicated sales cycles. But then when we dig in, their opportunity, you know, it may be massive from a MongoDB perspective. They may, may be spending high six, seven figures. And therefore, we may want field sellers or what we would traditionally consider enterprise reps helping them along because they've got so much complexity in what they're trying to build. Maybe it's a big game or, you know, maybe it's a complicated new SaaS product that we may treat a very small company by revenue or by size like an enterprise customer journey because we want to make sure we de-risk that deployment and it's potentially a large customer for us. The flip side is we may have a project in a large bank or a huge enterprise that maybe they're just trying out our product for a small project. They only need a credit card to get started or a small sort of contract just to play around for prototyping or labs work. And we wouldn't want to have one of our really most sophisticated, expensive sellers spend the time to nurture that every single credit card user within a Bank of America or someone like that, for example, because it's just they're not ready to really drive a large enough of a transaction to make it economical for us to have you know that type of person spend time on it. So we've really had to evolve the way we think about a customer around a variety of facets, like the propensity to buy, the firmographics, the engagement of what they're doing in the product and which behavioral signals they have, and really determine, okay, which are the ones need a right style of sales coverage, which are the ones that don't necessarily need a seller, but they need a CSM to get engaged because they're kind of further down their life cycle. And that's been a big evolution within our company is trying to match the right company to the right style of engagement, whether it be touchless or some level of help along that journey, regardless of which size they are. And when we do that well, what we find is MongoDB gets adopted across multiple applications or multiple groups in almost like an organic way. That's less about like us necessarily hard selling and you know pipeline generating into every new block, but it becomes sort of a flywheel within an account because we're so engaged with the customer, not just at renewal time or once a quarter on a check-in, but continually as they adopt the product over time. I like that idea of evolving how you think about the customer is that everybody thinks about customer segmentation, but they usually think about it at high level size of company, industry that you're in geographic location, things like that. And those are obviously important, but I like your way of zooming in to the particulars in a much more pronounced way to think about use case, to think about which team is adopting this. What are they trying to accomplish? It might be a small company, but this is an important application that can have a ton of reach and and sort of tailoring based off of more use case specifics rather than just merely firmographic and demographic information. Yeah. And you know, this is an evolution as we learn more and can get better signals, data into our 
whether it be our lead scoring or our metrics around customer scoring in terms of how healthy they are. This is definitely a journey. It's not like here's a playbook and you can just apply it. I think every business has different complexities. But I think one of the things philosophically, we're one of the companies that started with a pretty mature enterprise Salesforce and then bolted on and built a scalable inside sales model as, as well as a you know direct self-service business as we're talking about here. But we very much look at it as a lens of like, you know, we call this omni-channel distribution internally, because a lot of the things we're focusing on now are not how do we grow the self-service business bigger or how do we just grow enterprise sales or inside sales independently as a channel. We're looking at how those channels interact and merge in ways that actually make it bigger than the sum of its parts. Because each of those different channels is really a requirement for a company like Mongo. We're in a massive market. It's not like, you know, a Goldman Sachs or a, I'm using banks just because they're heavily regulated as an example are necessarily going to go spend seven figures on a SaaS product, you know, over a credit card. So we need to make sure we have the full reach and can meet the different customers where they are on their maturity curve or the vertical they're in. Yep. My question is kind of how you do that in a scalable way. Because I think that folks are certainly familiar with collecting some data in a more old school fashion, whether it was like truly old school, go to Dun & Bradstreet, get information about your, your customer, or sort of perhaps, you know, more modern and new, which is connected up to Clearbit, and you'll see sort of lead enrichment, and you'll be able to route appropriately into your core systems. But as we think about, you know, this idea of understanding use case, understanding context, and being more situationally aware, and looking at data that might be different data, how do you do that? And what are some of the important sort of starting points for folks who want to get to this level of, of segmentation? This has been definitely an area we've put a lot of investment in across both marketing operations and sales operations in the last, I'd say, 18 months, two years ago, both in terms of on the sales side, territory planning. That has a lot of signals that just go into purely planning the top targets for an individual seller's territory or a region's territory. Then there's a whole set of things we did around revamping our lead scoring model. So we re-implemented it basically from scratch. We actually partnered with a company called Madkudu that helps with actually machine learning that feeds into the score. That pulls a variety of different data sources. We're a customer of Clearbits uh, as well in terms of pulling their data sets in. But we're also just constantly merging data sets into that scoring model. And then that automatically correlates to the ones down the funnel that convert to revenue over time to improve that score. And I think the scoring happens automatically at this point, almost every hour, we're kind of refactoring those. And so I think the important point is, I would definitely think about a modern approach that allows you to plumb in different signals over time, as opposed to only relying on a per one particular vendor's source of data. Because for us, like the data we have today, you know, and June or almost June of 2020 versus what we had even a year ago has evolved significantly. The way we were able to do that was just by building this foundation that allowed us to plumb into our lead score everything from external data as well as behavioral signals from the product to one central place and then have a model that can run to correlate that score to the actual revenue it produces down the funnel. Yeah, and I think that what I'm hearing here is it's the continued progression and evolution of a lead score if I think about sort of the early days of lead scoring, it really was, who is this customer? Who is this account? And let me get all the firmographic information that I can about them. And then sort of V2 was, what are they doing on my marketing site? Did they register for that webinar? You know, Are they opening the emails, sort of drip campaigns that I'm seeing them? 
or that I'm sending them. And then we can kind of, you know, respond appropriately because they're showing some buying signals. And you're sort of layering in that you need to think about also how are they operating and, and what are they doing sort of from a strategic standpoint to suggest that they might be a high propensity account or a low propensity account. Adoption of the cloud and things like that being important for you guys. For sure. And even product signals, right? We have tens of thousands of people coming in and signing up for our free tier, for example, in a given week. So how do we know which of those free tier users, besides like figuring out their email address as a corporate account versus social, but also looking at like what they're doing? Is it just a latent environment that had little activity? Or maybe two months later, that free tier has been sitting there, but all of a sudden it's got a bunch of activities spinning up. They load some data, they're logging in a lot, they've added maybe team members of theirs to their environment. Those are all signals that we can use that feed into either marketing <laughs> triggers, you know, in terms of being able to retarget them or send particularly triggered campaigns or in product, you know, kind of messaging to them, or it can influence a lead score as well and say, we've suddenly seen an account that was latent in the past, maybe had some you know, environments spun up and nothing going on to one that's now suddenly got this flurry of activity. We want to make sure we get engaged with that customer right away when they're in that moment. Now, do you guys call it a PQL formally, or how do you think about bringing in that product analytics into the lead score? Technically, it's still fundamentally an MQL at the end of the day. But what we do is we're transparent about the signals that drive the scoring of that MQL. And we actually put all those signals from the product side and behavioral signals in front of into Salesforce and into, in the case of CSM, in front of Gainsight. So they can basically see that, all right, the reason why this MQL came through was because the customer has five people using the free tier of Atlas, they've downloaded a webinar, and we think that they have you know, a bunch of community usage going on in their environment. They can have all that context. And that was actually a really big change because instead of just seeing a score, they now have the depth of information around why that score was even bumped up to their list to call on. And then have context so that when they reach out to the customer, they can say, all right, I see you've got this going on in your environment. Can I get you some help? Or did you know there's a better way to do this? You know, those types of things. So we found that just plumbing information <laughs> across the organization to the teams that touch the customer most directly improve the quality of both conversion and just the quality of conversations that they're having because they just have so much real-world context going into the call as opposed to just saying, hey, we saw you downloaded a white paper. And I think a lot of people look at PQLs and they hear PQLs are the new sort of popular thing. And they think, well, I'm doing it all wrong because I don't have a PQL. <laughs> and then you sort of instrument and wire up a PQL and then nothing happens because it's less about, do you have the right three-letter acronym? And it's more about, are you actually doing the things you know behind that that really matter? And so you talking about taking product analytics, taking product data, piping that to different teams in the organization who need that context and can make the appropriate decision. That's so much more powerful, that sort of power of product analytics than like calling a PQL versus an MQL. Now, rounding out um, this part of the discussion about customer journey before we close here. So something you mentioned that I wanted to come back to is this idea that you could see MongoDB adoption inside the same account in lots of different pockets. And so you, you kind of actually want to encourage that. You want to fan the flame of seeing all of these pockets of adoption inside a given large account. But at some point, I imagine that you look to connect those dots and sort of unify everything and say, all right, you should have one relationship with Mongo. How do you process that? And, and when do you do that? And is that important? And just is this dot connecting thing, you know, sort of a key move for you guys or not? Uh, it definitely is, but it happens in a 
at least a couple different ways. So one is because of our marketing efforts or just, you know, organically people find our products and our service and we figure that out and we see the pockets of it, of data. And then, you know, that's information that then a, either an SDR or a seller can then use to engage someone more senior and say, listen, you've got X amount of organic traffic in these different pockets. I've already reached out. The team seem really happy. Is there an opportunity here to potentially make this a more strategic relationship or spread it more broadly? And it kind of happens as an outcome of those signals that we see. We also foster that. So we will have, for example, account-based marketing initiatives that are much more like hackathons or DevRel events, but they're focused on a particular environment. You know, of course, they're all playing around, they're building on our technology, and now we've got a bunch of different people to follow up with across the organization. And it kind of fans that bottoms-up adoption. So that's kind of one play. The other is we get the ability to engage much higher, you know, at a line of business executive level, a CTO level, CIO level around, you know, something more strategic. Maybe it's multi-cloud is top of mind or some large scale cloud migration where they didn't really understand that Mongo had a real play there. And that is, you know, more IT decision making, <laughs> decision maker oriented, field marketing oriented, maybe some more senior level events. We catch the ear of somebody there. And then we say, obviously, a database technology for developers, you're probably not going to like push that decision down. But someone senior can at least open the doors and have us engage with the most strategic projects that are top of mind for them. And they point us at the right place in the organization that then, since we're coming from the executive leadership down, has obviously, it can accelerate the sales cycle, gives us a warm introduction to engage the technology teams and technology leadership that are ultimately going to be driving the selection. And so it happens both ways and in mixes of different ways, depending on the account, because some of these companies spend tens of millions of dollars a year on database technology across multiple vendors. So it rarely ever like a one transaction and we're out kind of situation for MongoDB. We're all, once we land in an account, we're typically large account. We're engaged there for years and it's very much a land and expand and expand and expand motion. And I think the last set of questions for you that I'd love to dig into on this customer journey side of things is just how you set up your team and how you do org design and how that might be different in, in a self-service environment. I'm curious to hear how you think about setting up you know, marketing versus growth versus product and kind of who owns what in this funnel since it's all kind of getting mashed up together. I'd say the, the key thing that we needed to focus on to really get the self-service engine going was really tightly integrating product and marketing on being very data-driven and driving a culture of experimentation across the funnel. And that required bringing in obviously new leadership and new folks who've done this before. And it had much more of like a B2C consumer mentality of the way we think about the funnel than the traditional sort of demand gen and enterprise skills that we had honed over the years prior. So what we did is we actually created a growth organization that has both acquisition responsibility for things like SEO and making sure they drive to the content and brand teams the key topics that they think can drive performance. But that team is also looking and is measured at metrics all the way down funnel into product into ultimately paid to your conversion and revenue. And so we have sort of a hybrid model of a team that's functionally carrying acquisition metrics for the overall business, because those also turn into sales leads, but then is aligned. And so we have leaders across acquisition, conversion, and monetization, and then ultimately retention. And we also funded a dedicated 
growth product function with growth engineering as well that kind of dotted lines into that leader of growth and marketing. And that team is all measured fundamentally on the self-service businesses, KPIs and metrics, which are all around volume and conversion of the funnel to revenue. So I think really treating that as a core channel business function and integrating the horizontal functions of marketing and product together and forcing that team to think about the metrics and drive experimentation and learning across both teams has been the biggest fundamental change that's unlocked scale to the self-service business for sure. So back to that same idea as we were talking about PQLs, it matters in this instance a little bit less what you call it. I mean, you guys do have growth product and you have growth marketing, but that's less of the important thing. And it's more thinking about what roles and what functions need to be owned and how does collaboration need to happen and who's doing handoff to whom. And that's fundamentally different because it's no longer the traditional old school handoff from marketing to SDR to sales rep. And that's the way that it works every time. And so you need to sort of adapt organizational structure in order to fit the current environment. So that makes sense to me. Now, my final question for you before we wrap up the episode of the podcast here is taking a step all the way back, recognizing that we're in an interesting time right now during COVID and hopefully coming out of the lockdown relatively soon here. And there's obviously been a lot of changes that sort of happen because of that, even once we do return to a new normal. And I'm curious to get your, your thoughts on that. What happens post-COVID in the world of product? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, this is all speculation. But I think it's fair to say definitely for our organization, you know, the idea of remote work has definitely become more comfortable to us as an organization generally. When we're all sort of forced to... And this was a topic I would say even pre-COVID that we were thinking about is like, how do we drive a more global organization and higher and lower cost regions and outside of New York City, which is obviously our headquarters. And we've been doing that. But I think you know, there are certain organizations and certain teams, for sure, where we felt like it was really important for the key leaders or you know key members of some of these more nascent teams to really be in New York. And I think, if anything, we've realized that maybe <laughs> that isn't as necessary as we thought. So in terms of product, that looks awesome in terms of just being able to leverage talent pools more broadly than I think what we would have earlier. You know, that tapped into a whole set of talent that, frankly, before we probably wouldn't have considered unless we were really forced to. And therefore, we get either ability to attract talent we wouldn't have necessarily focused on before, or we can get leverage in terms of cost because we are seeing certain teams more open to perhaps hiring in international markets or other regions because in a world where we now as an organization know how to work better remotely than before, we're just more comfortable with it. I personally, this is just a, my take. I don't think like we're going to, I don't want to speak for MongoDB specifically, but like I don't think this is a world where like every business is suddenly going to be a fully distributed workforce. I think for some companies that might make sense and all that, but I also don't think it goes back to exactly the same office setups <laughs> that we had. I think it's probably something that's a mix of both. It makes sense to me. And we're all watching very closely to see how it evolves. And we're making history in real time here. So <laughs> good luck yeah. to you guys as you do that. Good luck to us and to everybody else as we to forge forward. <laughs> Thanks, Blake. Yeah, I will put in one minor plug. The biggest shift for us this year that's top of mind is our annual conference. So we normally do it in New York and it's a very in-person event. We're actually opening it up worldwide and making it fully virtual for those listeners who our developers and like databases, I encourage you to check out MongoDB Live. That's been honestly like a, a big test of our organization, sort of working in a new way remotely to try to pull off something in a, in a format we've never done before. 
Awesome. Well, we look forward to checking it out. And thanks for joining us today here on the Build Podcast. No problem. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of Build. If you liked what you've heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe for new episodes that drop each week. Follow me, Blake Bartlett, on LinkedIn for daily product-led growth content, and let me know what you think about the show. Join me this season on Build as we figure out the new customer journey and what comes next in product-led growth. One thing is for sure, all of us in the product-led community are in this together. Take care, everyone, and I'll see you next week here on Build.